This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. I'm Ryan Sperry from the City University of New York. Today, our guest is Adam Reich from Columbia University. Adam wrote, Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart with Columbia University Press. Today, working at Walmart. Our discussion was recorded on October 16th, 2019. We're here with Adam Reich from Columbia University. Adam recently published uh, with Peter Bierman, Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart, and is uh, visiting us today at Queens College. Thank you for joining us, Adam. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell us about the book, Working for Respect. What's it about? Uh, well, let me tell you about the project from which the book sprang. And actually, even before I tell you about the project, let me tell you about where I was in the summer of, or the spring of 2014 as we were developing this project. I was just beginning as an assistant professor at Columbia, trying to figure out how to do work that has some kind of public impact. Now, my sort of feelings about sociology as a discipline are that it's fine if people don't want to do work that has a public impact. Like, it's fine if people want to contribute to the development of sociological knowledge completely removed from public problems. But if we want to do work that addresses public problems, then we need to have a theory of change about how our work will impact those problems. And one ongoing frustration uh, that I've had as a sociologist is that it feels as though many of my colleagues and myself to some extent believe that sociological knowledge itself, if translated to the public at large or to policymakers, will be enough to change public conversation and public policy. Yeah. Like, so the idea is that these public problems are problems of knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that's wrong. Yeah. I think that most of these <laughs> problems are problems of social power, like constituencies not having not being organized, not having leverage to to come together, to put their resources, uh, combine their resources to get what they need. And so this project in some ways was an experiment in a version of public sociology that I believed in and still believe in, which is that um, we ought to be engaging with and in some ways writing for the constituencies that we think might be able to use our knowledge to change power relationships. And exactly. so in this case, it was uh, this project came out of a partnership between Columbia and then on the one side, the organization United for Respect at Walmart, which mm -hmm. is a voluntary association of Walmart workers. And then on the other hand, students. Uh, mm -hmm. So we worked with 10 undergrads from Columbia and then 10 undergrads from a variety of other colleges and universities. And mm. uh, the idea behind the project is that we were gonna send these students out in teams of four to five regions of the country. Uh, this was in the summer of 2014. Mm. Uh, so we sent teams of four to Los Angeles, Dallas, mm. Chicago, Southwestern Ohio, and uh, Central Florida. Mm. And they had two tasks. So they were embedded within local chapters of this voluntary association. And what their, their task was, on the one hand, to organize alongside Walmart workers, so to work with the local organization to organize Walmart workers. And then on the other hand, 
to interview Walmart workers, to conduct oral history interviews with Walmart workers. So we brought them all together in the early summer of 2014 and did trainings. And we brought in activists and organizers to train them in organizing. Mm -hmm. Columbia has the Center for Oral History Research. So we brought in Mary Marshall Clark, who's the director of that center, who trained them in how to do oral history interviews. And then Mm -hmm. we sent them out to Mm -hmm. do these two things. And in some ways, I think the project was well, it led to some interesting things. It didn't lead to a transformation yeah. in Walmart's labor relationships. <laughs> in fact, tall it, order for it, a project. It, it also didn't. It didn't lead to very many new members of our Walmart. Mm. Um, but I think it did lead to a whole set of interesting insights about the obstacles to labor organizing at Walmart, to yeah. the the kinds of life experiences that Walmart workers are coming to their jobs with. Mm. And I think it, it raised a whole host of questions for me and for my co-author and for a set of other colleagues I've been sort of working with since mm. about how we might contest power in these low-wage workplaces. So the book sort of takes it takes this project as its jumping off point and then kind of complements the data from the students with all kinds of other data, both administrative data from our Walmart, a survey that we ran of a survey of Walmart workers that we ran uh, using Facebook ads, mm-hmm. text analysis of this big online discussion board the full population of Glassdoor reviews of Walmart. So Glassdoor is this place where workers go on to review their employers. So we sort of text mined the the population of Glassdoor reviews. And so we we supplemented the the work that the students did with these different lenses on work at Walmart. Hmm. And what did you find about work at Walmart? What's it like to work at Walmart? So let me answer this with something of a cop-out, which is that one of the most interesting things to me is that work at Walmart is a lot of different things, that there's a lot of heterogeneity in experience. Uh Um, So you have some people who've been working at Walmart for 20 years who, for whom it feels like home, who tell ghost stories about their store. Like they feel so identified with their store that like they have this whole mythology of like ghosts in their store and (laughs) Sam Walton is this like mythical figure. Mm -hmm. And then you have other people who uh, have, you know, recently been released from prison who feel like because Walmart's one of the few places that doesn't immediately check uh, criminal records, Mm -hmm. they feel like they can get a job here and they can't get Mm -hmm. a job anywhere else. And Mm -hmm. that allows Walmart to mercilessly exploit them. Um, Interesting. And you have everything in between. You have young people, high schoolers who, you know, seem like they're like wandering around the aisles on drugs. And you have like high schoolers (laughs) who are on their way up who like... Mm -hmm our department manager and see their upward trajectory can and feel like they can make it to assistant manager. And if they're able to make it to store manager, mm-hmm. which is very unlikely because there's one store manager for, you know, for 300 employees. Wow. But if you can make it to store manager, it's a six figure salary. Huh. Uh, so that promise is like, you know, yeah. right there. Uh, Walmart advertises uh, that 70% of their management come from store associates, okay. which, as you know, as a statistician, like is a bullshit statistic, <laughs> yeah. right? Because it doesn't say anything about your likelihood of becoming a manager yeah. Yeah. if you're a low-wage employee. But I think that that mythology is really motivating for some people. Right. And what was your impression of like the objective work conditions? Like when you walked away from it? 
the objective work conditions again like one thing we did was we looked at the the yelp reviews across mm -hmm. different walmarts mm -hmm. by demography and like the walmarts in like wealthy suburban communities are you know fine generally mm -hmm. the people who I, okay so for not actually being subjected myself to the experience of arbitrary control by managers right. which is what a lot of people feel really that's what sticks in their craw the most mm -hmm. is like the fact that a manager can just order them to do whatever they want basically i think that's fairly universal um but in terms of like the work experience i think that in these wealthier communities the people who wind up working at Walmart tend to be sort of far from the median worker in the community. So it's like older people and high schoolers. Okay. And I think people feel generally fine. Mm -hmm. um, in more working class communities where people are like wanting careers and mm -hmm. Walmart is the only job they can get or they're wanting any job and Walmart's the only job they can get, like Walmart's not giving them that. Mm -hmm. And the conditions... I think there it you know people are looking for something that Walmart's not giving them. Mm -hmm. um, you know Walmart emerged out of the Ozarks, right? And the idea that Sam Walton had is that we can that he could hire basically the wives of farmers to uh, work at Walmart to supplement the family income. So it was always like meant to be like employment on the periphery. Like right. it, but now Walmart's the biggest employer in the United States. So it's central to the US economy, but the jobs don't allow people I mean it's, they don't allow people to make a living. Yeah. So for retirees who are basically like looking for a little bit of supplemental income to pass the time or high schoolers who are looking for a little bit of spending money, it's fine. For people who are trying to make a, a life out of a Walmart wage then it's impossible and so i think and then that said i think there are commonalities to people's experience of work which you see you know regardless of their own background which is the kind of frustration with the arbitrariness of control and yeah. i think one point that we make in the book is that while the arbitrariness of management is something that people have complained about you know since time immemorial about their their bosses it feels even more pronounced in a place like Walmart which you know the logistics revolution that Walmart inspired allows the company to to match its labor supply to labor mm -hmm. to demand really precisely and what that means is that they're always adjusting their scheduling and they're always adjusting what people are are doing. So mm -hmm. people will be cross-trained on like 10 different positions. Mm -hmm. um, and the manager, you know, if, if things are slow at the cash register, they'll have people stock. If things are slow in the aisles, they'll have people unload. Right. Uh, and that just gives the manager even more kind of uh, the scope for arbitrary decision-making seems even higher there than at a place like, you know, then, then it seems like it would be on the assembly line or that it or or even in a department store like Macy's where people are assigned to particular departments like there's just so much latitude in mm -hmm. um, what Control. workers can be asked to do that managers have a huge amount of arbitrary authority which i think is why one reason we find that the thing that gets people 
most frustrated is this this feeling of being disrespected or this feeling of uh, arbitrariness in the way authority is wielded. Yeah. You you talk about that. You mention how it's not so much about not having money to afford a livelihood, but it's rather I get the sense when I'm reading your book Things are administered from, is it Bentonville, Arkansas, whatever the headquarters is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of workers are basically holding the place of a machine that one day could do their job. Like everything seems to be centrally administered. And in some ways, these people are almost like human machine parts until they can find an automated. Yeah. So I think... <laughs> So I think that it's it is true that it's pretty centralized. Mm-hmm. Like the the temperature in the stores is like regulated by by Bentonville. Yeah. I mean, and you know, workers' hours are sort of determined per region by Bentonville. Mm. But I I wouldn't say that wages people are happy with the wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, people are happy with low pay. Like that, right. that's definitely <laughs> okay. not the message of the book. But I think the message of the book is in part that like when low wages are everywhere then it just feels like a weather pattern like and so the if you're choosing between walmart and mcdonald's then it's not like you might not be happy with the wages but that's not the thing that's like that stands out about your experience yeah Um, ask a question too what stands out about your experience is this like interpersonal feeling of getting screwed over by your manager which obviously is also about the small material compensation you're getting but it 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 feels personified in the relationship with management just in the past on research that i've read about walmart yeah. they, they had a policy of maintaining just part-time status for their their yeah. employees has that improved at all or do they still kind of maintain a large pool of employee, employees so they can maintain them as part-time and then avoid lots of benefits and things like yeah, that? Yeah, so they avoid I, – I, I think in our data, it's about 50% are part – 50% of, like, the people we surveyed were part-time. And even full-time okay. is, like – Walmart defines full-time as, like, 32 hours a week. Hmm. So there are all these, like, games that Walmart is playing with, like, giving people full, full employment status yeah. versus not – and so, yeah, I mean, our book isn't as much about those kinds of games. Like, we didn't hear those complaints hmm. as much. Um, oh, really? But I, you know, yeah, I don't know why we didn't But hear. maybe, like you said, it's endemic of, like, the whole industry or everyone's doing it anyway. So, as another place, Walmart's not that different. I, yeah, I think that's what I would say is, like, right, scheduling Scheduling and security is something that people talk about, like not being able to count on a, a regular schedule. Hmm. People are always, yeah, wanting more hours. I guess it's just that, like, that particular question of like, on the margin between part time and full time status, we didn't hear as much as maybe we would have expected. Hmm. And they recently said they were going to raise their minimum wage, right? They so, did. yeah, like, and not even right, federally mandated. Yeah, right. Right after our uh, project. Not that we caused it. Oh. I'm sure we didn't <laughs> cause it. Was, um, <laughs> maybe, no, maybe. Right? Don't be so sure. <laughs> um, but I think they were feeling some pressure. They were feeling some pressure, partly like the fight for 15 was going on, yeah. uh, partly because of the work our Walmart was doing, partly because of, you know, I think, Occupy and its residual, uh, the residual impact of Occupy. I think it was feeling some pressure, and it did voluntarily raise its uh, its starting wage to, I think, $11 an hour in the fall of 2014. Okay. And I thought they said sometime in the future they would go to 15 even, but I don't know uh, if that was going to... I gonna, don't think they've uh, ever said okay. they'll go to 15. See what happens. Yeah, yeah. see what happens. <laughs> um, 
You talk about uh, sort of the managers getting in, in, in under people's craw, or I forget mm-hmm. the expression, but basically the focus of people's anger was the exercise of what they perceived to be arbitrary authority. Can you flesh that out a little? Yeah, so I think it's as simple as like not being able to take a bathroom break when you really need to go to wow. the bathroom or um like or these like these feelings of like really needing to pick up a kid and not having feeling like there is someone who's the manager is uh giving that more friendly shift to but it's not me. Okay. Um, and you know, this all I mean it all could be just a result of algorithms. Mm -hmm. Like all of these decisions could be just turned into algorithmic decisions and depersonalized. But right now, or at least when we were talking to workers, they felt like the decisions of managers who disliked them. Did you get a sense that it was in fact the managers or is it hard to tell from your vantage point? Are the managers just a lightning rod or do you think that they... Well, I think it's true that like managers are told, here are the shifts that workers need to work. And then they do have some decision-making power over who gets what shift. And they get to decide if work is slow or if one department's slow, like who goes and works in that other department. And it's just a recipe for people feeling like there's favoritism. Right. I think it's almost irrelevant whether... There is favorite, like, sure, some managers are probably more impartial than others, mm-hmm. but in some ways, the, what we're observing is like the structural feature of Walmart, which makes it feel as though these decisions are, are the result of arbitrary authority. I mean, the paradox, so I feel like throughout my career, I've written about things like right as they become irrelevant. Like I wrote about <laughs> hospitals, like hospital organizations right before the passage of Obamacare and like writing about Walmart right as Amazon is just like destroying uh, right. retail. And I've done some work recently on the like food delivery industry mm-hmm. and um, and workers' experience of being managed by an algorithm. And it's really interesting the kind of contrast because like workers on a platform like Instacart like they it's harder for them to feel uh, outraged by managers because it's an algorithm like they don't have a human to they don't personify have a hu- no it's anger. just like who who are they going to bl- like they can get mad at the the app right but it's not it doesn't have the same power as getting as hmm. sort of getting mad at an at a person and i think that that does that's sort of interesting in terms is, is of is that the point is that why they do it so you have no one really to target your frustration i think so right. I, I don't think that's why they do it i think but i do think that's a result of it's a plus of, for of, management for management yeah. 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 yeah of these algorithmic control processes so if you know i've thought this is not i hope walmart management's not listening but you know why not why don't these low wage employers just make work for their company like uh, Instacart, mm-hmm. like basically just have a large workforce of like Walmart employees who can work whenever they want, but the wage will just fluctuate. Like the app tells you go to the photo department. The app tells you, yeah, if you work today yeah. for these hours, you get like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the future of work. Maybe it's work. heading there. Yeah. Maybe it's heading <laughs> there. Um, they probably own Instacart too. Or, you know, <laughs> they, yeah, they don't, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I would imagine, though, if we had somebody from Walmart here, they mm. would say, you know, this type of quality control is responsible, is necessary 
for us to ensure that Walmart doesn't become Kmart, right? That uh, management probably sees a need for this type of, you know, uh, this type of control and, and forcing people to do work in a way that they don't want. Or what's your response to that? Well, I think that, you know, I'm not sure what Walmart would say. I would imagine that Walmart would say, this is how we keep prices so low. Okay, that's how they justify it. I would say that's how they justify their managerial practices okay. and their low wages. Is like, we're, it's, we want to keep prices as low as possible. That's important to, um, you know, that's important to American consumers. Mm -hmm. That's why, like, people like Jason Furman, yeah. like, writes about Walmart being this, like, gift to the working mm -hmm. poor. And there, I think it's, you know, I think, well, first of all, that's just insane in that, like, Walmart could keep prices the same and sacrifice a little bit of profit and right. pay workers a lot more. Um, but it but it does, I think, pose this question about the trade-off between, like, low prices and, and dignified pay that allows people to get by. And I, I feel confident that most people would make that trade-off. Right. Um, like, if we could have dignified work that paid living wages for everyone, people would be willing to pay a few cents more? Maybe, I don't know. People <laughs> yeah. go to the store and they, you know, they want cheap underwear or cheap t-shirts, but I think it's more where you're talking about, there's a place in the profits where you could probably keep low prices. Right. I'm, you know, that article came out the other day that the Walmart family's making like $100 million a day, you take a big right? Cut out of, right, you can take <laughs> a big cut out of Walmart's profits and the profits for, you know, for all these uh, these property management companies that Walmart's leasing from, you know, there's yeah. all, all kinds of profit up and down the supply chain that you could, you know, reduce and give to workers before you'd have to raise prices. But that'd be interesting to see if people are willing to pay more, a little more for American yeah, if you workers. Were, yeah, I mean, yeah. and if you framed it not as like American workers, but like you, right? Like, yeah. I mean... Yeah, the same people that are shopping at Walmart that's are working the paradigm, there, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's like Fordism in reverse, and that's mm. sort of what we. I, this is a point that I don't think we're the first to make, but it is. It's like instead of the the Fordist model of like giving employees enough pay so that they can mm -hmm. uh, buy the cars that Ford makes, it's like you know you pay workers so little at Walmart that they're forced to shop only at Walmart. It's like the inverse. What do they want concretely for dignity? Like what would more dignity entail? Like bathroom breaks, obviously, and you know, maybe some type of flex. Time so I think it is, what yeah, is I think it is about pay. It is about, it's about having more voice just in terms of like the labor process on the shop floor, being mm -hmm. able to like determine what one does and not be able to be at the whim of of managers mm -hmm. um, i think it is some scheduling flexibility Healthcare obviously comes up yeah. a lot you know and this is actually an experiment that we're doing now because i don't feel like you know in some ways i feel like the methods we use are very good at identifying certain dimensions about work at walmart and not great at identifying sure. others so one thing I'm doing now with a colleague, Suresh Naidu, in economics is like doing a conjoint experiment where you survey Walmart workers and uh, you ask them about their dimen the dimensions of their job and then um, sort of offer them a hypothetical outside job option mm -hmm. and you toggle you toggle the wage a little, you toggle the community of coworkers a little you toggle the the degree to which the supervisor treats you fairly mm. and you sort of see whether workers are interested in that outside option or, or not and and so that's a way you know 
again, imperfect, but trying to tease out the relative importance of different dimensions right. of work. Very interesting. That's cool. But what about unionization? Like, I remember it was a big topic, Walmart's efforts to resist unionization. That's sort of the first imaginable route to getting this type of Yes. Yeah, so I think, I think our Walmart is, you know, it is, a, or it, it was, it's gone through a few different iterations, but it was like a nascent labor organization. It wasn't a union. It resisted the idea that it was trying to unionize uh, workers, partly because if it declared that it was going to, it was trying to unionize, then it would be subject to all kinds of constraints right, through right. this labor law that's actually just, wait, uh, just to clarify, our Walmart, you're not talking about the Walmart near your house. It's like O-U-R Sorry. Yeah, Walmart. It's the, organization it's the organization United for Respect at Walmart, right, right. Uh, which is now called United for Respect. Okay. And it's, a, it's a, an association of low-wage retail workers. And so this organization, that was, that's the organization that we were partnering with uh, mm-hmm. uh, over the summer project. And we're still partnering with in terms of trying to figure out new strategies for, for labor organization but i think they were convinced that the pathway to building a powerful organization uh, was not through the nlrb it was not through sort of traditional labor law it was building a an association that could take on walmart without trying to go through elections that they were pretty sure they would lose so it was a kind of militant minority strategy like have have a small cadre of really powerful leaders uh, that can uh, that can advocate on behalf of Walmart workers. Why is there like a ha, have they has there been sort of a widespread giving up on organizing for the time being? I or? think that there's Walmart has been so aggressive in its anti-union uh, practices, and uh, you know, just as a couple ex- examples, like the butchers tried to organize, I think, in a store in Texas, I believe, and then Walmart not only eliminated the butcher department in that store but eliminated butchers across its the company wow um as, and you know in the in our case the the store where workers were most powerfully organized suddenly suspiciously developed plumbing problems hmm. um and they shut it down for five months wow um so walmart's is very very aggressive in its anti-union practices and i think the the calculation for a lot of these labor uh, these sort of new labor organizations is that labor law, which at one point gave them protections, in in many ways today is actually a constraint on the kinds of things they can do. So some of the more powerful labor organizations or labor organizing drives now are happening either outside traditional labor unions or sort of in tandem with them. So our Walmart was actually funded by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, mm-hmm. but it was outside of the union structure. The Fight for 15 is was funded by the Service Employees International Union, but it wasn't a traditional labor organizing drive. These wave of teacher strikes um, mm-hmm. has been an interesting sort of combination of inside, like, the NEA and AFT on the one hand, but mm. then these sort of these indigenous groups of workers who are organizing outside of any labor law. And so I think there is a kind of rethinking of what kinds of strategies will be most effective. Yeah. Do you think that's mostly a strategy because of how unions are being seen in the public view to say, hey, we're not a union, but we're doing a lot of the things that unions do? That's interesting. I actually think it's more to do with like labor law just not giving 
like working within the NLRA, like working okay. within the NLRA just doesn't give you that many benefits. Like mm. it, if you're forced into a union election where you have to win 51% of workers votes in order to get, you know, in right. order to be, in order to bargain collectively, mm. you know, what are the, what are the benefits to that when you can, you can advocate and build power outside the NLRA hmm. and, and you can do the same thing. You can do the same restraints. thing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think at one point the calcul the calculus was different when the, the NLRA had some teeth and it could yeah. actually prevent employers from retribution, from retribution, yeah. from, yeah. When it had teeth, I think labor organizations for good reason went through more traditional techniques. I think that as it's lost teeth, unions are, are rethinking that strategy and I, for good reason i think like is, it, is the institution compromised pretty much like you know? i mean is the nlra compromised yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. i mean trump unions, yeah. i mean mm. yeah so trump just ruled that you know grad students at private universities can't unionize the 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 nlrb i think it has five members and three of which are are trump appointees i okay. believe but you know no i don't think that labor can count on the NLRA. How do workers find those pockets of autonomy? You talk about how, you know, there's a struggle for autonomy and, and workers find it where they can. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I believe this is true about work generally. Mm -hmm. uh, and this may be partly like my own Marxist inclinations, mm -hmm. which are more or less suppressed, but like <laughs> still come out every once in a while that like, many of us get some meaning in our work mm -hmm. like we we see ourselves in our work to some extent and i think that walmart workers like many other people do that and mm -hmm. and where do they do that well i think that partly for the same reasons why you see the frustrations with arbitrary authority because there there is this sort of flexibility in the shop floor like this discretion that that managers have also allows for these pockets of workers finding a sense of meaning. So mm -hmm. if you're assigned the, uh, you know, this shelf, you have to make this shelf, you know, look really appealing, like, but you can do it however you want. People right. find meaning in like, how do you make it pop? You know, right. um, and Walmart even has these programs where workers can like adopt a product and try to increase the sales of that product and then get some bonus if they successfully increase those sales. So again, that's like, uh, in that sense, that's all, that's Buravoy manufacturing consent. Like that's, workers feel a sense of ownership and that benefits the bottom line of the company. But I think that doesn't, that doesn't minimize the feeling, which is that like I'm taking ownership of this aisle, of this shelf, of this, product at the store um, you know some workers described their feeling as being like like i think this was a department manager who said that it felt like running a small business right. which is like incredible that walmart can actually make it feel to someone like they're running a small business like mm -hmm. feel the ownership of a particular department to the extent that you know as though it were a small business yeah and i think that's in part like a human inclination to like want to find meaning in our work and yes. to f seek out meaning in our work. And then I think Walmart does a brilliant job of like using that to its maximum advantage. Yeah. I, I find that compelling. You know, I think uh, we often think a lot about 
you know, the, the money aspect and the affording a livelihood aspect. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that about, you know, the account that you were laying out. There's more to work. I mean, I think about our own work, right? Like the paper writing is fun and filling out the forms mandated by the dean isn't. You know, one you're a cog in the machine, the other you're like a creator. And it makes sense that Walmart workers would feel the same. Yeah. I mean, I think that workers in general want some control over their workplace, right? Mm. Even if it's just that aisle or the, the how they fold the shirts or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, and you know, the Burroway thing too. I mean, it's even those workers in the factory, I think, gained something from that game they were playing, even if it was meeting the demands of management. Sure. Yeah. Mm. While the Marxists might say, well, no, you're just fooled and, you know, you're, you're self false consciousness. You know, but really, no, there's the something Gram to that, I think. No, I think the Gramscian, which is, you know, what, what Burrowboy's point is that, like, workers do actually get incorporated into the game. They do feel like it's there. It is to some extent in their interest to play the game, even as it benefits managers more. And I think you see the same thing, you know, when a cashier says like, I'm the LeBron James of cashiering, like I scan mm -hmm. my items faster than anyone else. Like on the one hand, yeah, that's complete, like that and is, pride. That, that, that's real pride yeah. and it benefits Walmart's bottom line. Right. And I think the trick, yeah, the trick for labor in part is to like, yeah, acknowledge those parts of work that really are meaningful and that where workers feel really identified and then try to use those as the basis for a kind of collective identity to make claims against the company. I mean, I guess the question is, does Walmart care about that? Or is yeah. that like a, is that just like a side effect where the next day, if that interferes with the bottom line at all, they're taking away that employee's yeah. right to that shelf, you know, like, yeah. okay, sorry, that was yesterday. Right. We don't know. I, we don't know, but I think that there is something to be, like, it feels like that is in Walmart's interest, in the interest of the bottom line. And if that is not true, presumably they would end it. But, I, you know, I think that on the one hand, you have this exploitative arrangement where workers really don't have a lot of outside options and mm -hmm. so Walmart can keep wages uh, you know lower than it otherwise would on the other hand I think you do have these ways in which workers feel like there are job amenities that keep them there um, mm -hmm. like like the sense of meaning like their friends and community like especially in some of these sort of stores that are in slightly you know middle class communities, I think the the community that some workers feel, both among their coworkers and then also among shoppers, is real. Mm -hmm. But I think it can serve both. On the one hand, it could be the basis of a collective identity to target Walmart. On the other hand, it could, can serve to keep workers quiet. Yeah. And I think that to me, that's sort of the interesting question: is like, how do you take these dimensions of work and turn them to the advantage of? You know, workers as a collective. Did, did Walmart ever come at you for this? Walmart's never come at me. I no? think we didn't make enough of it. Okay. Yeah. How do they feel about that organization too? It's like you know, it's oh. they're very anti-union, so that's oh, yeah. kind of they're completely anti oh, our Walmart okay. too. Yeah, I mean, they fought them tooth and nail. Uh -huh. They they took out injunctions against them, and in two of the in two of the five sites, our students weren't allowed on Walmart property. Oh, interesting. It's hard though, in a, in a way, because. You know, I'm gathering from you that a lot of the people who are dissatisfied with Walmart are the people who are sort of out of options. And it's hard to imagine an alternative system whereby, like, 
you could manufacture, I don't know, more, you know, better jobs or more autonomous roles and, and not without forcing Walmart to do it, you know, like creating a whole class of middle managers that no, might not I think, be necessary. I think, I think that's the point of like organizing is necessary, right? Like I mm -hmm. do think that putting pressure on Walmart, Walmart has historically been responsive to pressure, at least if we if we consider the raise that they that they gave to workers to be a result of the pressure on them, which I think it, it's mm -hmm. a fair interpretation. And in other moments too, our Walmart, for example, put pressure on the policies around pregnancy mm -hmm. and Walmart changed those policies. So I think there are these, like Walmart has shown that it's responsive to, to pressure mm -hmm. and, and the work is to figure out how workers can most successfully put that kind of pressure on the company. And so to me, like one of the sort of questions emerging from this work is how can academics be most useful to these kinds of organizations? Mm -hmm. And how, how can they? Okay, well, this is sort of where my work is now. And so one project that I'm working on with a colleague at Rutgers, Hannah Shepard, is, uh, is to look at, so our Walmart has developed these really compelling online discussion groups mm -hmm in which workers can both vent about their jobs, but also touch base about a range of things. Mm -hmm. Can online discussion boards be a basis of collective identity in a way that puts pressure on the company? I think the, the jury's out. Yeah. Um, I, I think we've seen it actually, I think we've seen these groups be successful in the case of like teachers and Instacart and DoorDash workers. I think, so I think we've, you know, and, Occupy to some extent, I think, was powered by these this online presence. Are there also dangers to investing too much in in online infrastructure as opposed to in person organizing? Yes. So one experiment we're doing is like testing out the um, the organization's model of online organizing mm -hmm. against a kind of hands off discussion board. So randomly assigning people either to like a group that is actively facilitated versus a group in which there's no facilitation and seeing the impacts on collective action. This is one sort of experiment with uh, to try to determine what works in the online space, which mm -hmm. feels like a key question. Another project that I'm working on with a couple colleagues, which is sort of not far enough along to talk too much about, but is trying to use data that organizations already have to help them better identify uh, both like locales that they ought to be focusing on and individual workers within those locales mm -hmm. that, um, you know, given the data that, that the organization has about places and people, um, can we come up with like a predictive algorithm that, that's, that shows the organization which places and people are underperforming uh, in terms of the algorithm? And like, does that actually help the organization uh, get better at its at its leadership development practice. So these are like the kinds of things we're playing with. Mm -hmm. Cool. Throughout the entire process, studying Walmart, working on the book, what are the big sort of insights that you walk away with? You know, ideas that have changed or points of view that have been altered from the experience? So I think that the heterogeneity piece, while I realize is in some ways obvious was also really striking yeah. to, like just that people orient to this low wage work 
so differently Mm -hmm. across place and even within the same place. I think the other piece that I realized about myself and, and some of my colleagues is that our disdain for Walmart, mm-hmm. um, I think, is a strange conflation of a legitimate sort of grievances with the company's practice and a kind of elitism. Hmm. And that we sort of, part of what we don't like about Walmart is like the people we associate with shopping there and working there. And I think that like to separate these, like to actually, and so I think that the like natural thing that I hear from my colleagues when I talk about this work is like, I don't shop at Walmart. I I would never shop at Walmart, (laughs) you know? Mm. And that contains both, right? That's in part like, I don't shop at Walmart because it's such a terrible employer, you know? But it's also, I don't shop at Walmart because like how, you know, yeah. how it's below me. It's below me. Yeah. And so I think like teasing out those different motivations and, and, and in some ways rethinking the way that we engage with low wage work mm-hmm. um, like is important. So like, yeah, I, I'm not the most social person, um, but you know, what I, what I've tried to do now is to in, like wherever I'm shopping to just engage more with the people who are working at that place, ask them about their, condi- their conditions of work, ask them, uh, again, me doing it does not have an impact, but one could imagine that, that if everybody if were to do it, everyone were to do that. And if it were part of some kind of coherent program, yeah. um, in the service sector places, there's a lot of interaction between the public and workers. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that that's an opportunity. So that's the other thing I walk away with, that there is this opportunity to sort of rethink the ways that consumers and workers are interacting. And I'm not quite sure what that new relationship looks like, but mm-hmm. it feels like we can exploit the fact that consumers are in touch with low-wage workers a lot these days, Mm -hmm. we should be able to use that to build working-class power in some way. That's Adam Reich from Columbia University. Adam, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Adam Reich from Columbia University. His book is Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart with Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Liseth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Ryan Sperry, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.